Indeed, O oh God, it is amazing love that demands our soul, our life, our all. The weight of that demand has not yet been felt by most of us. Because, Father, we have not yet fully plumbed the depths of the grace that is so amazing extended to unworthy sinners. We are men and women who deserve nothing at your hand and yet have been offered and given everything for life and godliness. There is around us wrapped clothes of righteousness. There is this marvelous provision made for our sin of past and present and future and we are safe. We are everlastingly secure, not because of any contribution we have made, but we are secure because of grace. A grace that brought us out of our deadness, our spiritual death, and has planted our feet on that which is firm and everlasting. We are alive through sovereign grace. We pray, O oh God, that our music, our songs, our praying, our, our giving, our preaching, our responding might all reflect that we are men and women who know that we are in possession of that which we never deserved but has been given to us as a gift of grace. Might those hearts overcome with a sense of gratitude Extend not only our monies, but our worship. Be pleased with how we give and be pleased with how we love. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. It's simple. It's found in, um, in James chapter 3. And uh, actually, I guess you're not supposed to do this, but... Um, it's only a half of a verse. It's in uh, James chapter 3 at verse 2. And uh, just the first half of it. And the text simply says, For we all stumble in many ways. That's my text, ladies and gentlemen. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever. And the word of our God to us this morning is simply this. For we all stumble in many ways. I think it began at Watergate. For those of you who were born after 1960, Watergate is the name of a hotel in Washington, D.C., which is the headquarters, or which was the headquarters, of the Democratic National Party. And during the, um, the months that preceded the election, the Republican National Party uh, at least was accused, and I think uh, ultimately confirmed, as having burglarized the Watergate Hotel, trying to steal secrets from the Democratic National Conv or Party concerning the campaign and, um, and aiding, hopefully, the election of Richard Milhouse Nixon, which, of course, he won that election by election. Um, but it led, that is, that um, breaking in 
to the Watergate Hotel led to one of the most embarrassing scandals and downfalls that this country has ever known. It led to a resignation of a president and uh, sending countless others to jail. Uh, one man that might uh, ring a bell is the guy by the name of Chuck Colson, who was a part of that whole ugly scandal, but went on to go to jail, come to know Christ, and uh, then establish this ministry called Prison Fellowship. But what I'm suggesting, ladies and gentlemen, is that that event, that Watergate event, led to, and if it didn't lead to it, it certainly contributed to it uh, in a very significant way, it led to a nationwide mistrust, but not just of politicians, of uh, policemen, uh, preachers, teachers, salesmen. It led to a widespread mistrust of just about everybody in authority. And then adding to all that, unfortunately... There were, it seemed like there were, there were uh, people in every one of those classifications, such as preachers and salesmen and teachers, some people in each of those classifications that blew it so monumentally that it just uh, further entrenched in the, human, in the American psyche that nobody could be trusted. I, I think, of course, the name that comes so quickly to mind is Jim Baker and uh, Michael Milcom in the, in the whole world of finance which just reinforced the whole idea that nobody, nobody could be trusted. That idea about the Watergate, that's not original with me, folks. Others have, have pointed to Watergate as the grand beginning, the grand instigator of this you-can't-trust-anybody movement. Well, it's not surprising that... Um, dishonesty or inauthenticity uh, bother people a great deal today. And it's also not surprising that uh, I, along with you, I'm sure, have found that people are, are drawn. They're drawn to sincerity. And so it follows, I think, that if you and I want to be useful to God in reaching the non-Christian world, that mistrust just about everybody. If you and I would like to think that our church could be used as a place where non-Christians would be drawn, then one of the things that would effectively point them towards Christ is simply to be real, authentic, genuine, to feel free enough through the, the liberating power of God to live out before them an honest life. Somewhere we got the idea that if we just appeared more spiritual than we really are, kind of like that bunch, if we just appeared to be more spiritual than we, than we really are, then we would be really useful to God. Well, ladies and gentlemen, our appearances have backfired. And our audience has become, has become pretty good at spotting the phony. And they have become all the more insistent in their demand for reality. And who in the world can blame them? It reminded me of a story that I heard Oh, years ago, uh, it was a story that was told uh, by Al Davis. 
Al Davis is a name that's familiar to most of you. I would think he's the uh, present, the current owner of the Oakland Raiders. And Al Davis was telling a story uh, at a reunion that he attended, a reunion of all the people who formed uh, the AFL. Now, for many of you, you don't even know what the AFL is, the American Football League. Before you had the present NFL, there were two leagues, the AFL and the NFL, and uh, they competed over the same players for years and, and until finally Broadway Joe, Joe Namath, predicted that the AFL was going to beat the, the NFL champion Baltimore Colts in Super Bowl III. And he did. Pulled it off. Probably one of the greatest shocks in all of sporting history. But as a result of that, um, the, the two leagues decided that they would merge and you have today the present NFL with the American Conference and the National Conference. But the point is, Al Davis and all of his cronies who had gotten together in 1959 to form the old AFL were at a reunion some 25 years later and Al Davis was telling this story about something that had happened 25 years ago in 1959 at that, uh, that first meeting of the founders of the AFL. He said that night, uh, the guest speaker at that supper uh, meeting was a guy by the name of Nicky Hilton. Now, does the name Hilton ring a bell? Well, it ought to. Uh, his family, uh, a grandfather or father, is a guy by the name of Conrad, who was the founder of the Hilton chain. And, and Nicky was uh, introduced to this, this group of people who were about to form the AFL. AFL and, the, and the guy that introduced him introduced him as a man who had uh, just made $100,000 in baseball in Los Angeles. And that's 1959. Of course, 100,000 miles is a lot of money then, but uh, I made, uh, just made $100,000 in baseball in Los Angeles. And so he stepped to the podium and to it a thunderous applause. And um, he grabbed the microphone and he said, well, I, I need to correct a few things about my introduction. He said, first of all, um, it wasn't I who had that experience. It was my brother, Baron. And um, it wasn't in it wasn't in uh, baseball. It was in football. And and it wasn't in Los Angeles. It was in San Diego. And it wasn't a hundred thousand dollars. It was a million dollars. And he didn't make it. He lost it. <laughs> but you know, in a world that's so full of phonies, isn't that a breath of fresh air? You know, I, I think the church could could learn a few lessons from Nikki Hilton of all people. Evangelicals are, are prone to kind of stuff ourselves into this mold as to what a good Christian ought to look like. And I, I want to suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, that there's somebody out there that's one step away from the kingdom that needs to meet somebody as weird as you are. They need to meet somebody just like you. One part of the mold that we are afraid that we're supposed to fit into has to do with our emotional life. Some well-meaning uh, teacher has taught us that there are certain emotions that are, that are just 
subpar for the Christian. You know, they're just off limits for those of us who name the name of Christ. Things like fear and anger and doubt. Um, we've outlawed certain emotions thinking that, that some are and some aren't indicators of spiritual maturity. And in our desperate attempt to Christianize feelings, somebody has forgotten to check with the Psalms. Because, ladies and gentlemen, if you look there, you're going to find fear and grief and doubt and anger and joy and thrill and hatred, all of it. Hatred? Yes, ladies and gentlemen, David cries out, Do I not hate those who hate thee, O God? You know, gang, do you know what non-Christians need to see in you? You know what they need to see in you more than some dry eyes and some pasted-on smile? They need to see you grapple with fear and, and sadness and anger and, and jealousy and loss. They need to, to hear you talk openly about how you've wrestled with those, those issues. And they need to watch you work out your faith without discounting the, the, the everyday emotional realities of a, of a real life. What they need to see, in short, is some people being real in their emotional life. You don't need to hide them. You don't need to sanitize them somehow or, or fit them into some widely acceptable mold. No need to, to stuff them or to, um, to fake some others that we think are acceptable. What they need to see is some kind of emotional genuineness on our parts. You know... Um, I think men are the ones who are the most guilty in this area. Because somehow we've gotten messages after messages after messages that certain emotions are, are just off limits to us. And, and the idea is that our masculinity will be threatened if certain emotions are, are present. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's the very thing that I'm, I, I'm addressing is the idea that there is some mold that you and I have to fit in before we can be viewed by a non-Christian audience as being a good Christian. There's another part of this whole thing, besides my emotional life, it has to do with my failures. You know, when we've blown it. The problem is, I, I'm afraid, is that a lot of us have mistakenly thought that we should kind of hide our failures at all costs. Um, we've been told that moral missteps will drive people away from God, and so we'd better not let anyone find out about what we've done. Now that, ladies and gentlemen, is the fallacy to which our text speaks this morning. For we all stumble in many ways. Did you notice the, um, the title of my sermon this morning? It was a pretty good title. They're not all good, but that one was funny. Sovereign 
stumbling? Well, I didn't make that up. I stole it from an article I read by Larry Crabb. And Larry Crabb used that as a title to describe his whole life. Sovereign stumbling. (laughs) Think about it, ladies and gentlemen. Think about just stumbling. Nothing damages our dignity like stumbling. I I have seen people dressed to the hilt stumble and fall on their way to to those doors to this church. I have have watched serious and, and gifted soloists head up some stairs and stumble and their music kind of fly to all, all over the stage. I have watched high school graduates who uh, on their way up or on their way down to grab hold of their diploma slip and make fools of themselves. I have witnessed weddings where grooms, and primarily the brides, who will be heading up steps and will stumble to such an extent that these $3,000 gowns that they bought are pulled almost completely off of them. I have watched MCs trip up in their own microphone courts and stumble and fall. Friday night I was, I was at a Redbirds game and we were, uh, we were enjoying the comforts of one of those uh, corporate, corporate boxes, you know. Morgan Keegan's, and um, we were all sitting there, and then the box next to us, I don't know who it was, not what corporation it was, I don't know the man either, but he's sitting in the chairs, if you've ever been in one of those boxes, he's sitting in the chairs, he's not back there with the girls in the air conditioning, he's sitting in the chair, drinking a beer, and he leans back in his chair, and his whole chair pulls up out of the concrete floor, and he falls flat on his head. And I'm telling you, we all hear this commotion and we look over there and that poor man, he is down for at least 90 seconds and we're wondering, is he dead? And, and of course, the first thing they grabbed was the beer because you wouldn't want to spill his beer. And so some, some friend grabbed his beer to make sure he didn't spill that. And so for the next 89 seconds, we're waiting to see if this guy's going to get up. And finally, you know, he kind of gets up and brushes himself off and, and in that, that moment of, of utter embarrassment and spilling his dignity all over his pride, and he kind of looks around to make sure, wonder who's watching. You know, at that moment, you kind of want to be invisible because nothing, nothing so humiliates as, as stumbling. But, but think about it, ladies and gentlemen. Think about this. I, I have, I, you have too. I'm not the only one who've watched people make fools of themselves while they stumble. You know, one of my greatest fears is that on Sunday mornings when I step out in front of the flowers, that my 11 and a halfs are going to be too big for one of those shelves right down there, and I'm going to fall flat on my face in front of you. But let me ask you this. When you have witnessed people stumbling, what has been your primary emotion? Has the emotion been, I need to run over and kick him? Has it been, somebody get over there and hold him down while we all laugh at him? Has that been it? Or has there been a sense of, 
of um, identification with the embarrassment? Is there a sense of sympathy that comes out of your heart and mouth as you watch this poor slob? A kind of a, a deep inner sense of support. You know, we watch this poor guy, you know, there he is, you know, <laughs> this chair is pulled out of the concrete and and the the first thing, I mean, the first thing that seemed to happen was, is he hurt? I mean, um, bless his heart. Poor guy. Because we we identify with him so readily because because we've all stumbled before. Again, the thing that James has in mind is not, and what he has in view is not physical stumbling, is it? It's the moral brand. It's the, it's the, those kind of moral hiccups that seems to be included in all of our lives. Nobody's perfect. To stumble is an act of humanness. And the text seems to suggest that we do it more than once. For we all stumble in many ways. And yet, when it comes to people physically stumbling, there seems to be this inner sense of support and sympathy and identification. And yet, when it comes to something moral, we do something like this. Don't get too close to them in Kroger. Because for heaven's sake, it might jump on you. Could I add just a, um, a, a note of realism? You know, ladies and gentlemen, what do you think that the non-Christian world is looking for? A bunch of people who are... Um, Perfect? You know, um, as a part of my job, <laughs> I started to bring this book to the pulpit, but I thought, no, I, didn't, I really wasn't going to have time because I knew we were having a skit. But, you know, part of my job is to listen to some of your stumblings. And sometimes, after you've told me those things, you never look at me again in the back of my eyes. And I've come to the place where after I hear a story of somebody's stumble, the last thing that I say to them when they, before they leave my office is I say, now listen, you don't have to run from me in the halls anymore. It's okay. The first thing I'm going to do when I see you next is I'm going to grab you and hug you. Because I want you to know that we all stumble in many ways. And what happens in the Christian church, I'm afraid, is, is instead of living out this, the ramifications of a life of grace in the midst of our stumbles, we cover our tracks. We, we rationalize our failures and we hire some attorney to get us off the hook. All designed... 
so that we can present an image to the people around us of some kind of infallibility, some kind of antiseptic life, so that people will think certain things about us and we, we couch it in language that maybe God will use us then. Can, can I give you a piece of inside scoop? Folks, people who are investigating Christianity don't expect perfection from us. They're, they're way too street smart for, for thinking that any of us are perfect. What, what they do hope to find is someone who can... someone who's got the courage to, to confess their failures and their blunders and make things right. What they're looking for is, a, is some people who will repent, a little bit of humility thrown in, and maybe even some restitution. And when they, and then when they see that, it assures them that, that we're serious about our faith. It, it also gives them a little bit of hope that if they ever give their lives to Christ, they don't have to live under some burden of perfectionism. And, and ladies and gentlemen, they'll be a whole lot more open to hear us talk about Jesus Christ if they watch us be real. You know, I, there's no way that I can um, ever answer my own question, but I wonder how many non-Christians don't come to church because they think they're not good enough to come. Where do you suppose they got that idea? The idea that Christianity is only for good people. They got it from them. And I hope they don't go here. That is, I do love you people who did that skit. <laughs> Please stay here. But the characters you were playing, I hope they don't go here. Because, ladies and gentlemen, they're too street smart to think that you and I have never stumbled. You know, ladies and gentlemen, our, our, we live in a postmodern culture that is tired of words. It wants the real. Real is everything. Real is convincing. Real emotions. Real confessions. Real people. It is the eye, ladies and gentlemen, not the ear that is the primary decisive organ these days. Not what you say to them what they see you living out. And I, I have not yet figured out why it is that we as the people of God who understand, or at least understand a little bit about grace, run from our failings and attempt to hide them instead of living out a life of grace. I, I'm, un, I'm, I, I'm, I'm convinced that the only people who can be real are people who understand something about the beauties of grace. Um, we can live authentically in the midst of our stumblings because we know what the Savior has accomplished for us. The older I get, the, um, 
the more I feel sorry for those who are still convinced that our text doesn't include them. Because the fall, the inevitable fall, and it will come, it's going to hurt so much more when they fall from such a high pedestal. I read a little story that I thought was uh, cute. Uh, there were little five little girls in a neighborhood, and one of their daddies built them a, uh, a, a tree house in the backyard, and uh, they were going to have a little club. You know how we used to do having clubs in the backyard in the tree house? Well, I never had a tree house, but we were going to have clubs in our neighborhood, and and so um, one of the little girls um, uh, wrote out or painted out or something uh, a little poster that became the club motto, and they put it on the side of the the, bur- uh, the uh, tree house. Uh, for their club. And this is their club motto. Nobody acts big. Nobody acts little. Everybody act medium. <laughs> Just another way of saying, oh, how we long for reality. Real people. You know, Chuck Swindoll is one of my heroes. And... um I've read just about everything he's written, but uh, what I'm about to tell you, it didn't come from one of his books. It came from an interview that was contained in Leadership Magazine. And he was being interviewed. Um, for some reason, they've never invited me to be interviewed in that magazine. I don't understand why. But um, they were interviewing Chuck, and um, uh, he closed the interview by saying something like this. This is not an exact quote, but it's close. He said, you know, when I, when I go to heaven, I don't know what people are going to say about me when I leave them. I don't know what the congregation is going to say, whether they're going to say, oh, was he a fine teacher of God's Word? Or, uh, man, uh, he was a great leader of God's people. I don't know whether they're going to say, Chuck Swindoll was the most encouraging man I ever met. He said, you know, I really don't care what they say about me in those regard, in, in those concerns. There is one thing, however, I hope they are able to say about me. They may not be able to say I was a great preacher, a great leader, a great teacher, but at least I hope they can say, Chuck, was real. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know whether you can say what, what you can say about me either. But one thing I hope you'll be able to say about him. At least he was real. Because I am utterly convinced that the only people who are going to be used by God to build his kingdom are real ones. I close with this. Don't forget. There are going to be real people in a real hell without Jesus Christ. I'm asking you to build an irresistible testimony so that God might use us. Our Father, forgive us that we, uh, we let our churches, we let our preachers press us into a mold that is not true to who we are. We pick up little things in the evangelical community that are supposed to be true of us and, um, and we're phonies. Uh, we know a lot about pasted smiles, but we, uh, we know very little about authenticity or genuineness.
Forgive us, Lord. And like the non-Christian world, if she ever comes into these walls, might they see real? Might they see a real preacher and a congregation who desires authenticity more than reputation? Father, if you've led people here today who have not yet met Jesus Christ, might they get a glimpse of the one that we think is altogether lovely? Might they get a glimpse of the one whose death means life for sinners? And that that life includes a bunch of stumbling, but it includes more forgiveness and all of our stumblings. Might Jesus in His beauty be seen in our worship today. We ask it in Jesus' name.